You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We are a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe Blassengame. And if this is your first time meeting me, I have been clean and sober for over 16 years. I'm a drug and alcohol counselor, interventionist, and the co-founder of a telehealth company called Lion Rock Recovery that provides substance use disorder treatment online. Okay, I'm here with Scott today, my producer. Boop, boop. Scott, what are we talking about today? The Q&A for today is one from a listener, which we appreciate, by the way, that you reached out. And hopefully we can be helpful for you. A little bit longer question, but obviously real scenarios are more nuanced than sometimes what we do on the show. So uh, my husband is an alcoholic and his drinking has been getting worse. He tried to quit a couple of times in 2019 and 2020, but relapsed. It's now affected him health-wise, including his mental health. He says he will go to treatment, but he doesn't follow through. You mentioned that you do interventions. I wanted to ask how we can get him to go to an intervention to encourage him to commit to getting into treatment. Currently, I've been jumping in the water trying to save him and he's not grabbing the lifeline. I don't know how to step back because I don't want him to hit a crisis. Any help will be greatly appreciated. And that's from E. So we're going to leave it kind of anonymous here. So we have a husband. He is had a relapse in 2019, 2020. It's now affecting his mental health and additional health concerns as a result of this. He says he's going to go, doesn't follow through. So how do we encourage him to commit to getting into treatment? So first of all, E, thank you very, very much for sending your question. And I'm sorry that there's pain and struggle in your life right now. I understand what it's like to love somebody and want them to get help and have them not be willing to work as hard at their own recovery as you are. And it's really frustrating. So you mentioned that your husband has tried to get sober a couple of times. So he knows he has a problem as an alcoholic and he has that if he put any days together during those periods of time where you said that he was able to get sober, then he knows the drastic difference between what it feels like to be loaded and what it feels like to be sober, which is a positive thing. It's a helpful to have that in the memory bank. The thing that stuck out to me the most in that question is that I don't want him to hit a crisis. And unfortunately, that's the mindset that typically draws out this process. And what I mean by that is that sometimes things have to really fall apart for them to fall together. And none of us want those consequences for our loved ones. It's scary. And if you're the spouse, you sure as shit don't want to deal with whatever is coming your way. And and I can say this as you know, my husband and I are both in recovery and we talk about, okay, what would it look like if one of us relapsed? And when I 
he or I are worried about the other's program, rest assured, we're thinking about ourselves and how their program is going to affect us. And I mean, I, we're some straight up like, you cannot drink because that will affect my life and <laughs> love you. But you know, we put this life together. So I totally understand this desire to stop them from making a huge mess, especially because when we're married to the alcoholic, a lot of the times we're used to cleaning up the mess. And so the assumption is, I'm going to have to pick this up. I'm going to have to clean this up. I don't want to clean up this crisis, this mess. So I don't want it to happen. What can I do to stop the crisis, stop the mess from happening? Sometimes there's nothing that you can do. And the longer you try to delay the crisis, the worse the crisis is going to be. So it is likely that your husband desperately needs this crisis. He needs this crisis more than anything, more than anything you could possibly do for him in order to feel the pain, feel the need for that change. And often that crisis is the thing that helps the person grab the lifeline, which I talk about in the episode where we talk about how to help a loved one who is using or drinking and and, you, and we want to help them. And, and I'll just give that analogy again, which is it's like you're the family member, you're standing on a dock and down in the water, your child, your loved one, your husband is drowning. And our first instinct is to to jump into the water with our loved one. And unfortunately, that's not really how addiction works. What we have to do is give them some sort of, I call it a life ring, some sort of life preserver, right? And we throw that in. We have to have them grab it. If they're not willing to grab the life ring, we cannot do that work for them. And so our instincts are to save them. Even if you were to pick them up and pull them out of the water and put them on the dock, if they're not willing to put their hand on the life ring, they're just going to jump right back in the water. So we have to get that tiny bit. It doesn't have to be huge. We have to get that tiny bit of willingness because alcoholism is treated every day. It's every day I get up and I treat my alcoholism. Every day I get up and I do something for my recovery. There has to be a willingness there. So a one-time quick willingness typically isn't enough to sustain recovery because really what we want is that sustained recovery. So, you know, to come back to this, the best I I would highly highly suggest going to Al-Anon. I know that's why do I have to go to a meeting for my husband's problem? But they will help you and support you and show you what they did when their spouse was going through the same thing and how they took care of themselves and how they shielded themselves from some of that mess you're worried about. So do you have any kind of stories where you can look at that, you know, kind of a little case study of a spouse or somebody who sort of let the crisis happen? And while from the the sort of onset of that, that seems like a really scary proposition, but in the long term, that actually turned into an opportunity for them, those two people to kind of come back together in a healthy way after recovery happened. Do you have anything like that? Yeah, I, I have a couple and one that's coming to mind for me where a woman is married to a man who is struggling with his alcoholism and they have two kids and she similarly to our writer did not want to deal with the consequences, the crisis that was definitely 
coming. One of the things that was happening was um, drinking and driving. And so the boundary she set was that he wasn't allowed to drive the children or, you know, and, and she said, obviously she set a boundary. You can't drink and drive, but the real boundary was like, you're not allowed to drive with our kids in the car period. End of story. Even if you say, you know, like this is my boundary. And it was clear that at some point he was going to have some sort of consequence with this drinking and driving. Now, if you are a worrier, as any spouse of an alcoholic would be, or would either is or would become, you're like, oh, if they hit somebody, if they kill somebody, if they kill themselves, right? So those are things you're definitely worrying about, not things that you can prevent per se, but they're this woman. She made this, she set this boundary and eventually her husband got a DUI. Now, DUIs are expensive and annoying. However, once he got that DUI, the court required him in order to have his license to go to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, to do classes on, on drinking and driving, et cetera. There were real major life consequences to his drinking. And what ended up happening was because he, the court for fear of jail, sent him to those meetings, he eventually was able to connect at those meetings. Now, he didn't want to be there, but he had to go. So he went and it stuck and something stuck. And he was eventually able to get sober and you know, happily ever after. I also know of situations where the wife called the said, if you leave here, if you drink and drive, I am going to call the police and I am going to give them your license plate and let them know that you are drinking and driving. That's another option. Like I am not going to allow you to potentially hurt other people on the road, you know, injure yourself, et cetera, et cetera. So there are different iterations of that, of like that crisis, that's that impending crisis and how you choose to deal with it. And I think that that's an example of sometimes you need an outside pressure not just you as the spouse. It's like any any of us know, I'm sure Scott, you've had this experience where you've been telling your spouse something forever and <laughs> they... Not that I relate or anything, but you've been telling them something forever and then you know their girlfriend or their you know guy friend or whatever tells them the same thing with like three different words and now it's you know revolutionary and oh my god my whole life is changing and you've been standing there like you have got to be kidding me right so never no no not for me i you know the way i package it it's just always very well very well received exactly every single time it's like it's magical actually Mm -hmm. like it's pretty cool yeah yeah yeah, exactly it's like spoken out of the right it has to come from the right person. Yes. Right. So I think with spouses who are dealing with alcoholism, particularly when one person is struggling with alcoholism and the other person is not, you know, there's resentment. There's don't control me. There's I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Stop. You know, you don't understand. It's super easy for the spouse to become the enemy. And so it's so, I would say most of the time, it's better if the pressure is coming from other places because the spouse is more likely to listen to it. And that sucks. I wish that weren't the case. I wish there was a like a better answer to that. And I know that if my husband were drinking and I had little kids, that I would really dislike that answer. But it's the truth. It is the truth. It is the reality of the situation. The best thing that you can do, and this sounds crazy. I get it. I get it. I get it. I get it. Please, please, please take my word for this. 
the best thing you can do for yourself is to go get yourself support and help. Because what happens is as you start to change, they notice that. And the paradigm shifts, the relationship, the energy, the rules change for them. That scares the shit out of them. And that is a consequence. That is a consequence. You can be the consequence, but it's not how you think. You can be the consequence, the crisis, the change by going and doing your own work and getting your own support. And believe me, any person who's been to Alcoholics Anonymous and you know for any period of time and they've gotten sober and then gone back out, et cetera, and they are drinking and they see their spouse start to go to Al-Anon, they're freaking the fuck out. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, oh, coach. Oh, gotcha. She, yeah, yeah. She's about to detach with love. Oh, no. <laughs> um, but it is really something because that's when the clear Clarity comes for people, for the spouse who's not drinking. That's where the clarity comes for them on what to do is getting that support, going and talking to other people and really focusing on how to take care of themselves. Because when someone is on this alcoholic destruction path, it's like, oh, there's a saying that says like, if you're arguing with a crazy person, what does that make you? And it's kind of like that. So alcoholism, as I've described it, you're not in your right mind. So how are you going to convince someone who's not only physically, emotionally, spiritually addicted to a substance who's not in their right mind to do something different? Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I feel like as you're saying that, my mind is continuing the analogy by going to Al-Anon, by finding some support system. You have somebody who walks down the ladder on the dock and they're like, Hey, you look like you're gonna drown too. You know, like you want to climb out with me for a minute? You guys can sit on your life ring next to the life ring, right? You guys can, that person can, you know, hang out on the ladder right next to you and say, okay, here's what I said to my husband when this happened. Here's what I did. I called the police when they were drinking and driving. I made it a rule, uh, made it a boundary. Like you can't drive with the kids. I legally separated so that our finances were separate and they couldn't incur debt. And I said, we'll live together, but I'm legally separating because, you know, of trust. Like I need to see these things. There are so many different things that you can do to support your spouse in the right direction. But the thing that rarely works is the please, 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 will you do this? Why aren't you doing this? Why can't you do this? Will you do this for me? Will you do this for them? Will you do this for our kids? You're hurting yourself. You're hurting me. All those things. We can't hear that. That's, and the part of the reason we can't hear that is because the substances that we're using, the alcohol, that's literally anesthesia. That's that it is, we're using that to get rid of emotion. You're trying to give us more of it. We're just going to drink more alcohol to put out those feelings. Like we just can't hang. And I see the best outcomes when the partner goes, okay, I'm going to get help for myself and I'm going to come up with my own plan with the help of all these people who've done this before me. And people do get well and marriages do continue and in it, there are happy endings. I just, I rarely see it come from a spouse begging their other, their partner to get better. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, even in that example right there, there was like a couple things that you said that would not have occurred to me if somebody else hadn't been able to put them in my ear. So, like um, what? Oh, just like, legally separating for financial reasons like that's not something that would immediately occur to me but it's real right like there's there's quite a a toll that can be 
built up over that time, right? There, there could be some major things that happen, some life-changing things that happen financially that it's like, hey, look, I still love you. I'll still be in the house. I'm still here to try to help you. I'm, I want to give you help, but you're not going to ruin our finances. You know, totally. like, sorry, yeah. sorry. Exactly. And things you can do, you can, I mean, you can you can stay in the same house to make, you can ask them to move out and say, we're still married. I love you. But if you're going to drink and do this, I need you to get your own place and support yourself. Cause right now you're not contributing to our household. You're, you're only taking from it. You can have them sign a post-nuptial agreement saying like, if you do this, then this, you know, there's so many different avenues to support them and yourself into a new scenario. And a lot of them come from people with experience doing this stuff. What about... So she's mentioning this word. She's kind of talking about doing an intervention. And again, I can already... Let me just... Let me do some telepathy really quick. You're going to say, get professionals involved. Correct? I'm going to say that's your first step. but And we'll, we can talk about that. But are there, there are features that makes for more successful intervention type situations? So there are a couple different types of interventions. Let's start with that. There's an intervention called the Johnson model. And the Johnson model is the one you see on TV where they, you know, like the family gets together and they invite them to, you know, some game night. And then you show up and what do you know? It's your intervention. It's the surprise model. And then there's another model called Arise Intervention created by a woman named Judith Landau, uh, the Arise Intervention model. And that model, which I'm trained in, and when I was doing the training, I was very suspicious of this model. How, how would it ever work? Because it's called the invitational model. And you actually invite the person to their own intervention. And I have had a 100% success rate and 100% of the people have shown up, which I to this day, still barely understand how. It's really wild and it's really wild how it works, but it works. And the reason it works is because, first of all, they don't want you talking about them without them present and making decisions. And second of all, there's some sort of weird scariness about the fact that you're being super upfront. And when you're in the intervention, because you were upfront, you don't have the hour-long argument about you tricked me, which is what happens in another mode. Like, I can't believe you... you know, you deceived me. It's like a whole, like you have to get through that, right? So in the Arise model and, and in the Johnson model, but in the Arise model, I would say that 92% of the work is done with the family. <laughs> I spend all my time with the family, phone calls, doing like just coaching them, therapeutic work, guiding them. I spend, you know, 8% with the person convincing them to get to treatment. Once the family is in the right mindset, they've done the work, we've figured out a plan, the likelihood that that person, that I can figure out how to get that person to where they need to go is that's the easy part, getting the person into treatment. The difficult part is the family. And the reason I say this, why this is all relevant when we talk about what do you do in terms of professionals if you're wanting to do an intervention. The first thing I have them do is go to Al-Anon meetings. And, and when they go there, one of the things they figure out are what they're doing that is enabling their loved one. And it's, it is shocking the things that you find out. It's things you can't... You're like, oh, I... <laughs> I didn't know that that was, you know, I didn't know that was enabling or I didn't know I don't enable. And then you find out, oh my gosh, this little thing that I'm doing is actually turns out contributing or what have you. So figuring out how the family is contributing to the continued 
drinking is the biggest piece of an intervention. So think about that for a second. There's a person who is addicted. I've had crack, meth, you name it, heroin. And the biggest component is figuring out how the family's contributing. Because once I figure that out, then we change the plan of what the family is doing. We figure out, okay, what can the family do differently? What can the family, how can the family intervene? How can they stop stop or start resources? How can they, et cetera, et cetera. And once we change that in a way that makes sense, once we, it's almost like a, you know, one of those dial locks, right? Once we get all the different pieces, it's super easy because the person is like, oh, I guess this, I guess, I guess it's over. I mean, really, literally, I guess it's over. It is so wild how much we can contribute to the continued use of our loved one in ways we cannot imagine. That's why people say, oh, I'm going to get a prof- you know professional advice or whatever. Lion Rock Recovery has a family program, a six-week family program that's just for the family called Family Matters. Same type of thing, similar to Al-Anon, but with a master's level therapist and a couple other families where they talk about, okay, here's what I'm doing. Here's what I'm doing for myself. Here's how I'm contributing. And so they go through this six-week process of basically figuring out what we're going to do and what the things that they're doing to contribute might be. How does a person not feel, I don't know, just guilt around that? Like, you know, when they discover what those things are, when they find out the ways that they're potentially enabling, because I wonder, you know, I would imagine for a lot of folks, they can say, well, this is this person's disease and they've got to do what they need to do in this and, and to kind of discover that like there's potentially a lot of things that they're doing that are contributing to it. Do you have anything for those people to be able to kind of, I don't know, deal with that realization or to a place to put that? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. A couple of things. Number one, alcoholism, addiction, whatever you want to call it, the thing that drives us, the compulsive consumption of whatever your drug of choice is, that thing is in us very early on. And most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, there is something that draws us to that person. There is some dynamic that we find comforting in that person. And so when we marry them, when we marry that person, most of the time, there are things about the way they do things, the way they drink that worked for us. And what happens is because it's a progressive brain disease, that thing gets worse and worse. And so at some point, it becomes too much. And the thing that was tolerable or even attractive about that person is now unattractive and not tolerable or intolerable, as it were. And I think that you know when people talk about when it's a, a child or what have you, like these are learned. You know, typically there's trauma, maybe there's learned behavior, and if you know if you're a spouse or a parent, obviously you don't want to contribute to the struggles that your loved one is having. But the reality is that there's very few people who understand who who come into any of these situations understanding exactly what they're ta- what they're dealing with, right? So there's no they didn't get the handbook on how to deal with this particular thing and so they responded intuitively. And a lot of those intuitions are the same across the board for people who love each other, right? They try to convince them, they explain to them how it hurts them, they threaten, they cry, you know, 
those are the intuitive ways of handling these conflicts and they don't work with this particular thing. And so what I try to remind people is a couple things. Number one, guilt is an emotion linked to shame, right? And guilt is I did something bad and shame is I am bad, right? And With guilt, guilt is meant to give you a feeling of discomfort so that you don't want to do something again. It's not meant to tell you that you are bad, right? That's shame. I think guilt's okay if you feel some guilt about how you responded when you didn't know better. I have guilt about things, how I responded when I didn't know better, right? I don't like that I responded that way. But when it turns to shame... I am bad because I responded that way. I am a bad wife, a bad mother, a bad whatever. You know, now you're dealing with turning feelings into a much more toxic experience. If you have guilt because you did something in a way that you thought was good and it turns out it's not feeling those feelings, going, I feel I really, oof, I wish I knew better and I'm going to learn. That's a positive, normal response <laughs> to having these feelings. If you're expecting this to be a comfortable, feel good process. I don't know what to tell you. It's just not like that's, it's not going to be comfortable. It's not going to be a feel good process. It's going to be painful and it's going to uncover things. But guess what? It's much more painful if you don't do it that way. It's much more painful if the if the disease and the addiction continues to spiral. And so cracking that baby open, going, I feel guilt. I've, you know, this is maybe I feel shame over this. I feel having your feelings. And those feelings may be uncomfortable. That's important for healing. We've all a part of the problem is that we're all running away from our feelings. We're all running away from anything that's uncomfortable. That's part of how we got here to this intervention. And furthermore, I think it's important. We are asking our addicted one to feel their feelings. We are begging them to put the alcohol down and to feel their feelings. How terrifying is that for them? If you, as the person who's not dealing with addiction aren't even willing to feel guilt or shame or whatever feelings you have. I have to say, how can you ask them to do it if you're not willing to? And part of how we show people we love them is by saying, I'm willing to feel these feelings with you. I'm willing to do the work and showing up and doing it and modeling that behavior. I feel like I just need to let that sit for a minute. I think that's really that's really big. Yeah. I think that's really big. Yeah. People want to know how we can make it hurt less. And... I can't make it hurt less. This is how much it hurts because you love this person. And the fact that you love them is a gift, is an important piece of the puzzle. Because if you didn't, they'd be like any other person drinking on the street. But it hurts because you love them. That's a positive thing. This is all, all of our, you know, when we try to, when we try to disassemble and mute and anesthetize all of our normal, natural human being experience feelings, that's when we get into trouble. Having a pain response to something painful is an important part of being a person. We don't like that because we don't talk about it and we don't have the skills to deal with discomfort. But that's why that support group and talking to people who've been there before is so important because it gives you this pathway with this group of people to have these feelings and walk through them. And as I tell my five-year-olds on a weekly basis, I say, what do feelings have? And we all repeat a beginning, a middle, and an end. Before I was clean and sober, I did not know that feelings had a beginning, a middle, and an end. Because for me, once the feeling got to the middle, 
I did whatever I could to stop it because I didn't know that it was going to end. I thought I was going to feel that way, whatever bad that was forever. And it wasn't until I think I was a couple of years sober where I was in so much pain. And my husband and I were dating and we broke up. I broke up with him and I was in so much pain and I wanted to do... I thought, <laughs> I thought about cutting and I was like, I don't cut. I thought about... I was like, should I go sleep with someone? Should I go drink? Should I eat? I literally went down a list of things like of compulsive behaviors. And I was sober long enough and I had enough, you know, knowledge in my head and that I couldn't, I literally couldn't do any of it. And I just sat in my room and cried and cried and cried. And then it stopped. And it was like, I mean, this is, this is like seriously preschool feeling stuff that most people know. I had the experience. I was like, oh, if you just cry and cry and cry, like the feeling will dissipate. It'll come down and then maybe it comes back and then it'll come down. I didn't know that because I never, ever, ever let a feeling get past middle. Are you kidding? I was numbing that shit because I knew it was going to last forever and I didn't want to feel that way. And I numbed it with school, achievement, whatever you want. I numbed it with all of those things. And I remember that day very vividly. That feeling has a beginning, middle, and an end and it made it less scary. And so if you're not willing as the family to do that, how can you ask someone who's in such clear, devastating pain to do the same thing. I think that's really great. I Hopefully that's helpful, E. We're rooting for you for sure. I will... Maybe I'll speak for Ashley in that if this, if what we've been able to talk about, maybe didn't scratch quite the itch, then please reach out to us. And that goes for anybody else too. If uh, folks want to ask us a question, Ashley, like they did today, where can they do that? Please email us at podcast at lionrock.life. Podcast at lionrock.life. We realized we made it too complicated. We told you about <laughs> 75 places that you could send a message. You could put it in a bottle. You could do it by carrier pigeon. Smoke you could signal. do it. You know, there's a lot of different ways yeah. to get to us. And we meant for that to be just give you options, but this is probably easier. So just shoot us an email. And if you want us to talk about something on one of these Q&A episodes. Also, I wanted to mention one thing is just talking about... If you've been listening for any time period at all, you've heard us talk about lionrock.life and what an amazing community that is and a place where people can get plugged in. You know, I think oftentimes people are listening to podcasts and the beauty of that is you can listen to it anywhere and nobody has any idea what you're listening to or what the, the subject matter is or anything like that. And that's a great thing. It really is, especially when you're exploring. But there's this element too that it's pretty lonely too, right? Like you have the opportunity to maybe be listening to these podcasts by yourself and not be connecting with anybody else who is sort of sharing those same things. And and we're thankful that maybe this is helpful for you or that this serves a purpose or a role in your life or in your healing. Or maybe you just like the show. That's all great. But if you want to get plugged in, Ashley, tell them a little bit about LineRock.life because you know we're coming to the, to the end of this episode. So we know you're not going to pause it in the middle of an episode <laughs> and go yeah. to a website or download an app. That's not reasonable. I won't do that either. So we're giving you fair warning right now you can get a pen and paper out. You can write it down. You can, you know, you can write on your phone, whatever. And, and we're going to be done in just a couple minutes and you can go check it out. Yes. So you can go to the app store. I'm pulling it up right now. And 
I know that they have a family members group. So actually I forgot to mention that, that that's another place that people can go for support. If they don't want to do the 12 step thing, or they don't want to do the professional program, they can go to lionrock.life or lionrock life app, and you can sign up for how long's the trial? Trial's a month. We're going to give okay. you a month free. Going to give you a month free. I'm a skeptic. I'll call it out right now. And you know, sometimes I don't want to try something new. And so sometimes if you can give me like a way to try it out and I don't really have to risk anything, then I'm more likely to do it. We thought maybe we should do that. Yep. So a month, you can use you use the discount code COURAGE. You get a month free. You can use a fake name. No one will know who it is. You can call your, you know, whatever you always wanted to change your name to. If you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know, that when I was a kid, I changed my name to Karen Lobster Karen. So uh, <laughs> maybe I'll go in as that and uh, call yourself whatever you want and be anonymous. And the subscription is $9.99 a month after that. But again, you can just go into your subscriptions on your phone and you can, you can cancel that if it's not something that's helpful to you. But I hear people talk all the time about the ways in which that community has helped them. And I think it's really, really important. There's all sorts of neuroscience to back up the need for community and the need for support. And I won't bore you with it today, but it it does exist. And it's this is just a really important piece of the puzzle that people think is a nice to have. And it's not. It's part of the process. Yeah, absolutely. So check it out. We're at the moment. You can you can turn it off right now if you want to, honestly. If you want to turn off the episode right now. But otherwise we'll just say we'll wish you well. We'll we'll be rooting for you. Whatever you're going through at the moment, we're rooting for you. Ashley, any last words for them? E, if you're listening, I hope something in here resonates with you and I'm sending you a huge hug and letting you know that this shit is hard and it's okay to have big feelings about it. And it's okay to say this is really hard because it is. I have seen miracles in recovery. I have seen people get help and get sober who I would never have believed in a million years would do it. So don't give up the faith and please reach out if you need more guidance. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.